I, uh, I told my wife on Monday I got to play youth minister again for a little while. I spent about two hours, uh, okay, hour and a half, uh, watching various videos looking for something fun for today, and so uh, that was the one that I landed on. There's a bunch of those in case you wondered. If you're interested in some comedy, uh, there's a lot of videos of parodies having to do with the situation going on right now. So just, just throw it out there. If you're bored one day and you're looking tired of Netflix, tired of whatever, Hop on YouTube, you'll find some funny videos, they're good. Uh, so it's fun. So before we start, real quick, I just want to ask, did anybody look at these a little different this week? As you saw people wearing them, did you? I hope that you did. I hope the Spirit convicted you in that this week, as you saw people with these on. And I pray that each time you put yours on, you thought just a little bit differently. As today, as we, we talk about this idea of six feet, this idea of this social distancing that we are supposed to put in place. I'm just wondering, has anyone else besides me ever wondered where on earth did the number six feet come from? Did anyone have any curious about that? Okay, well, if you weren't sorry, you're going to learn um, because I was curious, so I looked it up for you, right? So here's what I found. First of all, note this, that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has not issued a public statement or any research that they particularly used to come up with that number. So we're kind of left to kind of explore and look at possibilities of why six feet. Where on earth did this number come from? And so here's what I'll start with. The World Health Organization, the WHO, which I'm sure you've all heard of now because it's been in the news, does not have the same recommendation. I double-checked this. I went on their website. I found their social distancing recommendation, and their recommendation is only three feet. Figure that one out, right? They, the, the theory is that they base their, their information on a research study that was actually done a very long time ago. Uh, in the 1930s by a man from Harvard who concluded that the large exhale water droplets that, that we get rid of only can travel about three feet in order to infect someone, right? Well, obviously, there's some more recent research that's happened since then. The most recent research that we think maybe they referenced was from the SARS epidemic, if you remember that from back in the early 2000s, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which, if you did not know, is also a type of coronavirus. So if you're wondering, that, that is where that came from. This study concluded, <clears throat> excuse me, that the virus could be transmitted by and an infected person that was up to six feet away when traveling on an airplane. So just through air particles, if you will, that it could be transmitted that far. Well, more recent research indicates that maybe the virus can travel as far as 27 feet as a result, you've seen these studies, as a result of a cough or a sneeze as things are projected across rooms. But wait, there's more. More recent research indicates that maybe, again, these are all hypotheticals, there's no absolutes here, you must keep that in mind, that maybe the virus can be contained in what's called an aerosol cloud. And maybe that virus can stay in that cloud for as long as 14 minutes before it would either vanish, be destroyed, drop to the ground, whatever else. Now, yeah. So now, now that we're completely clear on where we got this six-foot idea from, right, the authorities would like to remind you this, and this is directly from their website, remind you that there is no absolute certainty, and that is not the goal of any recommendation. There's no guarantee that six feet apart will keep you from getting sick. Instead, it is a guide to help reduce the risk. So now that that's all clear as mud, right, let's go to something a little more certain. Let's go to God's Word. Because we can trust that, we can believe that, it's absolute truth. And that's why we're here, right? 
I want to remind you as we begin, this is only week two of this series, to remind you why it is we're doing the goal of our series. This is our reality. These masks, this distance, the other things we're going to talk about, these are our realities. So what are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to exist within these realities? God knows our reality, and he does not want us to just get by. Jesus did not come so that we could have life and have it to the blandest or to the most ordinary, or to the most frustrating. He did not come for those purposes. He came so we could live life to the fullest, regardless of what's happening around us. He did not come for us to simply survive in this life. He came so that we could thrive in this life. And furthermore, the biggest reminder of all is that during this time especially, he wants us to reach out like never, ever, ever, ever before to a world that is more confused, more anxious, more afraid, and more depressed. Are you beginning to see some of the research coming out right now? already about depression and things happening during this time period with so many. So how on earth can we do that? Well, that's what we're talking about. For these four weeks, we're going to take four either symbols or emblems or rules or the hope that the world is throwing out here to us, and we're going to use them in such a way that we can specifically grow faith, strengthen faith using these elements and these emblems, as well as specific things we can do to use these same objects, these same rules that everybody's playing by to introduce others to the love of Christ and help them get to know him a little bit better. So the question of today is, how can we do that? How can we do that if we're six feet away from somebody? It's a great question. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two different Bible characters today who should have heeded this social distancing advice. If these two characters had heeded this advice, the world might be a very different as a result. In the end, one of the two characters absolutely did. They listened to the advice. They took it absolutely to, to, as truth, and it paid off very well for them, kind of. What actually happened is it seems kind of impossible, seems wrong, maybe even criminal, but in the end, it worked out quite well. The second person that we're going to look at, if only they had maintained this six-foot rule, then maybe, just maybe, their family might still be ruling Israel today because it's that important. So how does this tie into our personal spiritual growth. How can we use this new social norm, if you will, to share the love of Jesus with others? I ask this question now so that as you listen to the stories of these couple people, you can begin to think about how is God telling me that I can use this principle in my life to grow closer to him? How can I use this to reach out to others? Yeah, I'll, I'll pull it together at the end, but I really want God to speak to you directly through these stories as we go through them together. So if you would, um, answer this question for me. Have you ever done something wrong in life? Has anybody ever done anything wrong? Okay, I see some hands. This is not a time necessarily for public confession, although if it's appropriate, we do have a time here of response at the end, so it, we can do that. Um, it, it's all good. Maybe you need to repent today of whatever is, is happening in your life. Here's, here's the thing. Seriously, have you, ever, have you ever been tempted to do something, and you thought about doing it, and you thought about doing it, and then you didn't? And then you were tempted again, and you thought about it, and you thought about it, and you didn't. And then you were tempted again, and you finally gave in to whatever that temptation was. Something you've thought about, something maybe you've even plotted and planned, and eventually became so overwhelming that you finally gave in to it. Before we continue, I want to remind you of a passage we studied a long, long time ago in 2020. A long time ago. We're all tempted, but don't forget where that temptation comes from. Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians, very beginning, chapter 1, verse 13, when we are tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, but, because God does not tempt, God is not tempted by evil, he does not tempt anyone, but each 
person is tempted when by our own evil desires we are dragged away. And then that sin, that thought, that idea is conceived and it gives birth to sin. When that sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. We have to remember that it is our evil desires that drag us to a place we don't necessarily want to be. Nothing and no one else is ever to blame. And as a believer, I must admit this. It's my fault. It's my evil desire. And as we are trying to work with others that are trying to resist and try to fight against these temptations in life, we have to open their eyes to this same truth. They've got to see that it's their desires that are pulling them away. But we have more than just that to share with them. We have this great reality that's true first for the believer, but secondly for the non-believer that doesn't know the love of Jesus yet, and that is simply this. It's found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And that statement goes to anybody, anywhere, believer or not. But this is the information that we need to know first personally, and then we can share with them. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but will, when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. That is encouraging information for the believer. We can overcome any temptation that we drag ourselves into. We can overcome any temptation that we drag ourselves in, into through the power of God within us. He alone provides the way out. We're not left on our own to try to figure it out, to try to find the exit ramp, to do anything else. He alone will share that with us. He will make it obvious. We just have to follow his lead. But here's the thing. If we're trying to reach someone that's caught in temptation, that's struggling, and we're trying to, to work with them, someone who's been under and drug under by the temptations that they have experienced in this world, then now we can go to them and we can truthfully, honestly share with them that, hey, there is a way out. Let me tell you, it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus alone. What encouraging words those could be for someone that's caught. So we're going to look at these two Old Testament characters. We're going to the first half of the Bible today. We're going all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. Go ahead and open on your phone or the Bible's underneath the seat in front of you, whatever you'd like to use. 2 Samuel chapter 11. While you're turning, I'm going to read the first part of the first verse. It goes like this. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Because that is exactly how it's, this isn't biblical, this doesn't sound like the Bible, this isn't the way things are written. Why on earth did they say this? Why was this mentioned? Well, there's a reason. Because King David chose not to go off to war. So they made a big deal of it. This wasn't his custom, this wasn't his normal duty. In the past, he had traveled with his army in the spring when times were normal to go off to war. This was always the time men went off to war. The weather was better. The supplies were good. Everybody was strong and ready. It was a perfect time to go off and do such things. So the fact that David didn't, the fact that they address it, means, of course, that there's trouble on the horizon. This event is probably the most famous act of adultery in all of human history. But before we get into the temptation and the sin, let's remember God's promise to David. If you're a quick flipper, then you can go back just a couple chapters in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. He, David, is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. What an incredible promise to a king. Your throne will be established forever. Now, God has continued to honor that promise. He did so through sending his son, Jesus, through the bloodline of King David, where now Jesus, of course, sits on the throne for all eternity. But the physical throne of Israel, well, that took a little different turn, turn along society's path, hasn't it? If only David had followed the social norms of his day when kings go off to war. But sadly, he did not. And so that returns us to verse 2 of chapter 12, or chapter 11, sorry. One evening, David got up from bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I am pregnant. If only David had followed our guidelines of social distancing. If only the CDC had come out in the kingdom of Israel and said, six feet, don't get any closer to six feet, this would have never happened. And the whole history of the country of the nation of Israel would probably look drastically different today, would it not? It's crazy to think, but it's kind of true. Paul is the author in 1 Corinthians, I guess the credit, chapter 6, with writing these words, flee from sexual immorality, run away for all other sin a man commits is outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The question becomes, why on earth do you think the world is so bent on everyone accepting every form of sexual sin? Well, I can tell you very truthfully, it's because Satan knows the connection that this thing has with its creator. And he knows that if it can corrupt this connection in this way, it is going to be a very difficult thing for people to overcome. Paul expands on this in this chapter, beginning in verse 12. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know the one who does so is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality and all other sins. A person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Are you, are, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There is a reason that this particular sin is so, so accepted in the world. Because it destroys this connection with our God. Not that God can't rebuild it. Oh no, he absolutely can but he knows the harm that is caused when this is broken. This morning, overall, we're just talking about temptation in general, but we're focusing on David's example of sexual temptation as an illustration. The reality, all of us are tempted in all kinds of different ways. No matter what phase of life we are in, there are temptations surrounding us every day. But then there are those that we are actually drawn to, the ones that Paul wrote about in the book of Ephesians. 
the ones that capture our heart and begin to pull us away. So I want you to think about some of the things you personally are tempted by. We could make an endless list of such things. Is it David's greed? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it food? Yes, food can be a temptation. Is it an inappropriate relationship? Is it theft? Is it pornography? Is it laziness? Is it gossip? Check your social media feed and see. We could continue with an endless list of possibilities. The problem is, as believers even, we look at all these potential temptations and we evaluate them. And we say, you know, some of these temptations really aren't all that harmful. Others of them, well, these are devastating. I would never go that direction. But here's the problem with that. All temptation can lead to sin. And we learn what sin can lead to, ultimately death. It does not mean that all sin is, or all temptation is sin. That's not what I said. All temptation can lead to sin, and we must consider that as we fight against it. So how does this relate? How does this relate to the topic of being six feet away? Well, if you, if you could remain six feet away from whatever it is that is tempting you, now obviously food is an easy choice, right? But if you could remain six feet away from that, how would it help you resist the temptation? Now, obviously, we might not be talking about a literal six foot of distance. It, it might be six steps <laughs> that keep you away from something. It, it might be a, a mental thing that your mind keeps going. So six things you put into place to keep you from going down that road. There's a lot of things that it could be. If you look at David's example, whether he intentionally saw Bathsheba or not, if it ended there, if that was the end of this entire scene, would it have been sin? Yes. Yes. And he absolutely could have sought forgiveness, which he did for the sins he ultimately committed. And he could have thought, you know, maybe I should go off to war. It seems like things here might be a little bad for me. I'm going to take off. But he didn't. So what did his decision lead to? Well, it led to lies, led to deception, ultimately led to the murder of her husband, Uriah. It led to the death of the child that was conceived, and then it continued. The lies and betrayals within David's family were told to him by the prophet Nathan. Nathan, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, says this, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me, God, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you. And what you did in secret, they will do in broad daylight before all of Israel. Again, if only our social distancing rules were in place for David, his son would not have raped one of his daughters. Yes, that happened. His son would not have tried to kill him. His son would not have slept with his wives. He would not have tried to steal the throne. If only David had followed the rules that he knew were in place, then the kingdom of Israel might not have ever been divided. And as God had promised, maybe, just maybe, think of the history of the Jews between then and now. Think of things, how they could have been different. If only David had followed God's guidelines and these social distance rules, if you will, there might still be a member of David's family line on some type of governing authority in Israel to this day. You see, the reality when it comes to temptation is that social distancing is actually pretty stinking effective. And all I have to do is turn back a few pages in your Bibles to give you the second examples. We're still in the Old Covenant. We're going to go about 700 years before the time of David. Now, the interesting thing is this should have been a story that David knew and knew very well from the writings that he had access to. But here's the thing. This is a time, this is a man named Joseph. Now, we're not going to take time to go through his whole story because it is incredible and it's worthy of its own complete series all on its own. We're just going to take a peek at one scene. But this scene was a make or break opportunity for Joseph. And if this moment 
had been different, it might have set the entire course of the history of the seed of Abraham in a whole different direction. So this moment comes from Genesis chapter 39. So go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, turn about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through it, you'll find Genesis 39. Joseph is a very young man. This is just after, if you know the story, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was kind of a punk as a kid, but eh, sometimes when you got great information, you want to share it with everybody, and he just didn't have a whole lot of tact in how he did that. And so it got him into a little trouble, and his brothers wanted to kill him, but they sold him to slavery instead. Anyway, that's the long and short of it. Those slave owners then sold him to a man named Potiphar. If you know the story, he was an Egyptian, one of Pharaoh's officials that said he was captain of the guard, pretty high up in Egypt. Really, overall, probably not a bad place for a slave to land, if you would think about the circumstances that existed. The scriptures tell us a little bit about God being with Joseph in this time. Listen to this description of how Joseph was able to work in his situation. The Lord was with Joseph so that he, that, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. That's number one. He lived in the house of the Egyptian master, not probably with the rest of the slaves. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his personal attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted his care with everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the stuff he put in his face. Literally, the taste of the food he ate was the only thing he worried about all day. What a life that would have been, right? You had such a trusted assistant at your job or in your household, like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go eat. Let me know if anything happens. That's all he did. I don't know what that life would have been like. That was incredible. Joseph's master didn't concern him with anything, himself with anything at all, except the food he ate. Joseph had it as good as a slave, if you will, in that time could have had it. He was in control of literally everything. And then for whatever reason, the Bible throws in one other little description of Joseph. It says that Joseph happened to be well-built and handsome. Man, some guys have all the luck, do they not? My goodness, everything the man touches turns to gold, and oh, by the way, he's hot. What, what, do you, what do you do with that? I don't even, it's not fair, but that's just life, right? So here's the thing. He was doing everything right. He could not have done anything better. Everything was perfect. He was just doing his job. He could not obtain more power or more influence, at least not in his current position. And then through no fault of his own, he is caught in a mess. Why? Because he's a good-looking young man. That's why. In verse 2, we, or verse 7, sorry, we pick up. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of him, Joseph, and said, come to bed with me. Very subtle, very subtle young lady she was. I don't even, anyway. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. Can I pause there just for a second? No one in this house is greater than he is. That would include who? her. Ah, maybe there's an issue there. I don't know, but he's stating that. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. <laughs> Which I, clearly, if I was Joseph, I'd be like, I, <laughs> anyway, because you are his wife, then how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Listen to his approach. 
How could I do such a wicked thing against my master? How could I do such a terrible, sinful thing against my God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He stayed away. David knew this story. He should have followed Joseph's example, but he did not. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. This was his flaw. He should have noted that and probably left the house, but for whatever reason, he went about his business. She called to her household, oh, sorry, then, then when she saw him, she said her catchphrase, her pickup line once again, come to bed with me, to which, of course, he immediately ran away. She grabbed his coat as he ran away. When she saw that he had left his cloak, she called out, screamed to her servants, Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, rightfully so, he was incredibly angry, burned with anger. So Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now here's the thing. Joseph absolutely heeded the advice. Not only did he stay six feet away, he ran away. He put into action the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual temptation. Run away. But what happened seems completely unfair, unjust, even criminal. He did the right thing. Thing. And what happened? He was accused. He was lied about. He was in prison. Why? For honoring his master. Now, that's a hard thing to swallow, or at least it should be. Why do the right thing if, in the end, harm is going to come your way anyway? It's a good question. It's a good question. If you've thought about that question, maybe even repeatedly, then I want to tell you that the world has begun to control at least a little bit of your mind if that is your line of thinking, because that's not why we do what is right. We do what's right because it's right. <laughs> That's why. We believe that there is a right, which of course also means that there is a wrong. And we believe that God alone sets that standard for us, regardless of what the world believes. Now here's the thing. There comes a time, and I believe, and I think most of you would agree, that the time is already here. Where when you and I stand up for what God has set forth as right or wrong, we will now be the ones who are accused. We will be the ones who are ignored. We will be the ones that are mocked and ridiculed. We will be the ones to lose our jobs and ultimately could be the ones put in prison. So the question becomes, do we change our stance so that we won't get in trouble with the world? Or will we borrow the words of Peter and John and ask them a question, which is right? For us to do what you're saying or for us to listen to our God? Our challenge, don't give in. Even as the world rips off your clothes as you run away, because that's what they're going to do, as you run into the arms of Christ, into the comfort of his word and the peace that he offers, don't give up the fight for what is right. Joseph did not. Joseph, God was with him throughout all of these things. Why? Because he was consistently tempted. He consistently resisted that temptation. He didn't take a shortcut to the top. He did not betray those that entrusted him. The result 
Well, if you know the end of the game, the end of the story for Joseph, all he was able to do was ascend to the second highest power in all of Egypt. All he was able to do was save much of the known world from an imminent famine, which also included his very own family. And Joseph's life and his example is said to be a precursor of, of, of Christ. He is a salvific figure in the Old Testament as he saved the known world from this great starvation, an example foreshadowing of the work the Son of God would do in saving the entire world, all who would believe. And all of that could have ended if Joseph had not have run away from that temptation before him. You see, in our lives, it is really easy to get too close to sin, is it not? It is one of the most common questions you get asked. If you're a believer and people know that, or if you're a pastor or a leader within the church, one of the most common questions you get from people are those too close questions. Hey, how close can I get to this? How far can I go in this direction? How much of this is too much? Everyone wants to know where that line is. How far is too far? God's advice is always the same. Run away. <laughs> Stay away completely. So if we're asking the question, how close can I get what we're really doing is admitting the evil desires within us, and we want to know how much of that evil desire can I partake of before it's actually sin. Well, unfortunately, I have some bad news for you. If that's your thinking, then you've already sinned, at least in your heart, because God knows your intention. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Keep your distance from sin. If six feet isn't enough, make it 12, 20, make it a different building, a different change, jobs. If your temptation is at your job, change jobs. Yeah, God would tell you to do that. He's given you a way. He'll probably provide the job opening this week if that's a reality for you. If there need to be barriers in place, if it's more of a mental thing rather than a physical distance thing, ask a friend, ask a loved one to hold you accountable. During this time, we've given, been given some odd rules to follow. I mean, this is weird, this whole social distancing thing. It truly is but why don't we, as believers, take them, let's embrace them, and let's put them to work for us as we grow in our spiritual walk with Christ. Because as we put that distance between us and what we're tempted by, James tells us Satan will flee from us. Use this to help overcome some of our struggles, all while growing closer to Christ. As we increase the distance between our lives and those things that are consistently tempting us, what we're going to notice is how the perceived distance between us and our Savior seems to shrink and shrink and shrink until now, instead of feeling that temptation, we instead feel the presence of Jesus Christ within us. It's an incredible feeling that we can all have. And to close, I've got to remind you, who knew the six-foot thing could actually be good for growing our faith? And finally, as we attempt to reach out to others from six feet away, unless you have really long arms, it becomes a very difficult thing to actually touch them. So how can we begin to fill in that six-foot gap with the love of Christ? Here's just one way. As you have those meaningful, intentional conversations we talked about last week, while we're all wearing these, I want you to consider listening listening with ears to hear what they're genuinely saying. Listen for those temptations, 
for those struggles, for the pain that exists within them? Can we use this simple example, this temptation, this six foot, this staying away? Can we be someone of a source of accountability in those people's lives? Can we assure them that whatever they have done, whatever they are doing, no matter how far they feel God is away from them, he is here right now. He is ready for them right now. And there's absolutely no social distancing required in the presence Come to him exactly as you are. Now, I know there's some people a little crazy, like we're taking these things that some people agree with, some people don't agree with, and we're turning them into things that, that we can use as believers. Well, maybe we are crazy, but I believe God does everything on purpose for a purpose. I believe we, he can use anything to help us grow closer to him, and that's what we're doing. And so if that's you today, and this six-foot rule needs to get in place in your life, and we've got people willing to pray for you and that temptation or that sin struggle that you are in right now. As a believer, it is hard to admit and people don't like to admit it, but we can have struggles with sin. We do have struggles with sin. And God asks us to go to fellow believers and confess those sins and allow them to help us and to pray with us. Don't hold it all in and try to deal with it on your own. And if you're watching or you're here today and you don't have that relationship with Christ yet, he has a way out for you, and that way out, his name is Jesus. And it wasn't a shortcut. <laughs> oh, no. No, it was the hardest thing that could ever possibly happen. As he offered his very life in exchange to free you from the bonds of sin and guilt and shame. And so if you've never accepted that, we invite you to do so today. Father God, as we look at the world around us, and so many of at this point are just scratching our heads wondering what on earth is going on. Some people are thinking toward the future and wondering what on earth is next. Father, whether we agree or disagree, all of that is, is irrelevant. What we're talking about is the reality in which we live. And the reality that you want those that are believers in you to live a different life than everyone around us. You want us to have different conversations. You want us to reach out to those that do not know you yet. And so if we can use these tools, we can use these themes to reach out to those around us. Father, I pray that you use them in the lives of the believers watching today. And Father, as we attempt to reach out to those that don't know you yet, may we use these same exact things as tools, once again, to reach out with your love, to expose them to the truth of your word and who you would have us to be and offer them a hope that this world will never, ever be able to offer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for your word dating all the way back to the time of Joseph. How incredible it is to relive those stories and see how relevant they are today. In Jesus' name we pray.